0: All right, if you would turn in your Bibles with me to Romans. Romans chapter 1, and we will be in verses 1 through 7 this morning, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus, Messiah, and Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful Son of God according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ, to all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. Let me pray one more time. Father, now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart Be acceptable to you, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Luke's story, found in his history in our Bibles, which is called the Acts of the Apostles, tells of the birth of the church of King Jesus. It happened in the first century in Jerusalem at what we call Pentecost, which was brought about by the falling and the filling of the Holy Spirit, enabling the apostles to speak in the languages of devout people that had come from every nation under heaven, we read in Acts chapter 2. And among those gathered there, Luke tells us, were visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Acts chapter 2, verse 10. And while we can't be certain how the church at Rome started, it seems reasonable to believe that those that were gathered in Jerusalem from Rome may have been a part of the core of what became a thriving community of faith. And I'd like you to imagine now with me what it would have liked to have been some Jews from Rome who were there. Picture a young man named Joseph, his close and older friend, Simeon, some women who were traveling with them named Hannah and Ruth. Imagine what it would have been like to hear the thunderous sound of the Holy Spirit rushing over and upon them to look at each other and see the fiery signs of the Holy Spirit above their heads. Imagine what that would be like right here today if that happened. Fiery flames over your head who had planted now the dead Within their hearts, a fire for the spread of the good news of Jesus that they were hearing so passionately proclaimed by the disciples of this new king. Men who had been with Jesus and walked with Jesus and could testify to him. Imagine what it would have been like for them to travel home to Rome and to slowly start to build a fellowship just like they had experienced in Jerusalem where people were gathering in their homes and devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles and eating together and sharing the Lord's Supper together and praying together. And imagine this little band of devout people who had been in Rome or had been in Jerusalem back at Rome now doing the exact same thing, faithfully meeting faithfully proclaiming, obediently living out their faith and starting to see fruit, just like they did in Jerusalem. Imagine how they started to experience favor with other Jews and Gentiles in Rome, and every day, just like they had seen in Jerusalem, God was adding to their number those who were being saved, and the fellowship grew. Joseph has now become an elder. Simeon is one of the pastors. Hannah and Ruth are both deaconesses, The church is harmoniously healthy with a missionary zeal. And then disaster strikes in Rome. Claudius, the emperor, expels all the Jews from the city as he perceives a threat to his rule. Joseph, Simeon, Hannah, Ruth, all of the Jews, the majority of this fledgling movement of churches in Rome must leave. And so the Gentiles left in their churches must now step up up and fill those positions. Linus and Julius become elders. Claudia and Diana become deaconesses. While remaining faithful, understandably, the nature of the church changes. The atmosphere of the church shifts. And then the emperor Claudius dies. And this edict thus dies with him. And after years and years and years away from Rome, now imagine Joseph and Simeon, Hannah and Ruth returning home to their church. And of course, it's going to be just like it was. Wrong. Because Linus and Julius and Claudia and Diana are very
1: different people
0: with very different perspectives and ways of doing things. And here come Joseph and Simeon expecting to be restored to their former positions that are now filled by other people. And in their absence, so much has changed. And suddenly the church in Rome is not a place of harmony and grace and peace. And thus it is a church that is struggling in its missionary zeal to the nations because when the home front is a cauldron of differences and disharmony, looking outward disappears off the agenda. Enter the Apostle Paul. At this point in Paul's life, he has preached the good news of God from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, such that his goal is now to preach the good news where Jesus the king has not been named, Romans 15. It is likely that he has completed all three of his missionary journeys on which he planted many churches, and he's living in Corinth. This city would have held many memories for Paul, not least among them, as Luke tells us in Acts chapter 18 the time where he met the Jewish Christians, Achilla and Priscilla, who were there because Claudius had ordered all the Jews out of Rome, which would have been about A.D. 49. And at this point in his life, about A.D. 57, Priscilla and Achilla had long since departed and gone back to Rome. And we can only imagine what those two might have shared with Paul about the thriving, what they had known as a thriving and healthy church in Rome. And while we can't be certain of how Paul would have received further information about this church over the years, as an experienced church planner, with 25 years of pastoral experience, who knows how people tick and how churches work, who has the heart and the head of an experienced pastor who understands how doctrine is applied by preaching to change churches, Paul would rightly see the significance of this church for the kingdom of God and the advance and the spread of the good news. And so in alignment with his heart to preach where King Jesus has not been named, a church that he has consistently prayed for and deeply longed to visit. In chapter 1, verses 8 to 15, we read that. He sees it strategically located for his plan of mission work in Spain, Romans 15, 24. But Paul has also now heard of the disharmony that has arisen because of the disruption that came from Claudius' edict, the differences between Jews and Gentiles that are going on in this church. And as he always has on his missionary journeys, so now with Rome, he desires to strengthen this church through a visit. You can read that in chapter 1, verse 11. But since he hasn't been able to make it there, he sends this letter. And he does so to address the need for harmony in the church. He does so because he wants them to recapture their missionary zeal for the nations, for the sake of the name of King Jesus, he does so knowing that it is only by the powerful grace of God that such change can occur. So it is that we come to Paul's purpose in the letter of Romans. The purpose of Romans is the glory of God displayed in a harmonious missionary church humbled together under the grace of God. The purpose of Romans is the glory of God displayed in a harmonious Missionary church humbled together under the grace of God. And with such a lofty goal, it is no wonder that Paul would begin this letter with his most theologically rich introduction of all of his letters. In verses 1 to 7, although it's three to four sentences in your Bibles, depending on the translation, is actually one sentence, one sustained, the English teachers would say, run-on sentence from Paul by which he establishes his authority by making sure that we're clear of his calling and credentials, and by which he shows us that it's an authority not derived from himself, but from the good news long foretold that is not his, but God's. And by which he points to King Jesus as the substance of his good news and the desire of the nations. So let's dig in. Verse 1, Paul A servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the good news of God. Paul first describes himself as a servant. The word behind this is is doulos. It can be translated servant or slave. And because of the Jews who were in Rome, they would have very quickly picked up on exactly what he is saying by calling himself a servant of Christ Jesus. They would have hearkened back to all of the great prophets who had gone before, who had also called themselves servants of the Lord, great prophets like Moses and all of the prophets who followed after him, who were known as those who would speak on behalf of God. And so now Paul claims that same heritage. I am a servant of Yahweh, but yes, of his son, Messiah, Jesus. And Paul is not merely a servant, but he is called of God as an apostle. He's been summoned to a very particular task by God himself set on a specific mission as an apostle. To be an apostle is to lay claim to a close connection to the visible and risen King Jesus. It means that you came into personal contact with the resurrected Messiah and were commissioned specifically by him for the sake of his name among the nations. And when the Romans hear Paul laying claim to apostleship, what they hear is, this man has met Jesus and was sent specifically by him so that his words carry a unique and authoritative foundation kind of laying role in the birth of this church of Christ. And Paul has been set apart for the good news here's where all the gentiles in the in the room would have their ears kind of pricking up to that kind of a phrase the good news they're familiar with this word euangelios It was a a word that referred in Greco-Roman antiquity to extraordinarily happy news, often of a political sort. They would have celebrated such news from their godlike emperors, and the joyful messages would have been glad tidings of peace and prosperity that had come because of the rule and power and reign of each emperor in succession. Further, such understandings would have been bound up in this news, being glad tidings of of like a transfer of power from one person ruling and reigning to another ruling and reigning, bringing favor to all the citizens of the kingdom over which he reigned. Good news, glad tidings from a king, from an emperor that they would be waiting for, anxious to hear about. Maybe not unlike the good news that some of us may be hoping for in a transfer or keeping of political power come November 8th in this country. And Paul's good news is of a similar but different sort. Paul's good news and glad tidings of victory and rule and reign are far more important than any earthly emperor's or U.S. president or senator or congressman for that matter. His good news is not even his news. It is the good news of God. Paul did not come up with it, nor did he create it. It was revealed and entrusted to him by God. And it is here that we first note Paul's focus, which you might be confused by due to all of these self-descriptions, that his focus is not actually on him. It's on this good news that makes him who he is, makes him of any consequence or note at all. Paul doesn't want you thinking merely about him. The only reason that Paul wants you to listen to him is because of the news that he brings. It's the only thing that makes him of any consequence at all. John Stott says, This is still the first and most basic conviction which underlies all authentic evangelism. What we have to share with others is neither a miscellany of human speculations nor one more religion to add to all of the rest of the religions, nor really a religion at all. It is rather the good news of God, God's own good news for a lost world. Without that kind of conviction, our evangelism is evacuated of its content and purpose and drive. And so important is this for Paul. See, He so wants the Romans to believe that he hasn't come up with something new or innovative or fancy. He goes on to clarify that this good news of God is the good news that has always been. Verse two, the good news of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. Okay, you've already heard one of those prophetic promises earlier This morning, just moments ago, when George read from Isaiah, therefore my people will know my name. Therefore they will know on that day that I am he who says, here I am. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald, who proclaims peace, who brings news of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This is, this is Isaiah telling the joyful news, proclaiming the glad tidings and happy announcement of one who will come, a Messiah who will be king, who will bring peace and deliver God's people from the disastrous consequences of their sins. And here, Paul understands that the good news that he has is that same good and happy news, not merely for the deliverance of ethnic Israel, but the happy news that God came to rescue all nations who would believe the king, who would follow in an obedience of faith that would bring salvation from the bondage and devastating reality of their sin, not just for Jews, but for Gentiles, which is you, so many of you, unless you're Jewish here this morning. Such promises were also found in the words of the prophet Nathan when speaking to David, when he told him that Yahweh would give him offspring, one who would sit on his throne forever in 2 Samuel 7. And all of the prophets after Nathan would pick up on that promise, proclaiming that the coming Messiah would be called the son of David. And thus the long promised king who would bring the glad and happy kingdom and rule and reign of God once and for all. And with this backdrop of the history of the prophets and from the prophets, Paul now draws a line of bold connection between those promises and the content and substance of the good news of God given to Him. It is the news, verse 3, concerning God's Son, Jesus, Messiah, Lord, who was born from David's offspring according to the flesh, who was appointed Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness from the resurrection of the dead. Okay, so here's what we're going to see in this little bit of text. We're going to see, see, see some glorious truths about Jesus. Because Jesus is the good news. Jesus is the good news. Paul tells us that Jesus is God's Son. And in this way, the news that Paul brings is far better than the news of the prophets. For long ago, the writer of the Hebrews says in chapter 1, God spoke to our ancestors by prophets at different times and in different ways. And in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, making his covenant a better covenant, making this news much better news than the news from the prophets of old. In this little bit of text, we learn that Jesus is David's offspring according to the flesh. So in this way, Jesus fulfills the promises of the happy news that one day there would be a forever king who would bring God's kingdom fully and perfectly. Jesus, as the eternal and pre-existent son, never changing in his essence, at the same time, in a way that... Honestly, y'all, it's still hard for me to understand, right? Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. He never changes in his essence. And yet there is a sense in which we say he changed. He became the son of David according to the flesh. He took on the weakness of human flesh so that he might fulfill and make true All of the promises of God, but Jesus did not remain in weakness, hallelujah, for Jesus has been appointed king. I wonder if you know when Jesus became king. If someone asked you that question, when did Jesus, I mean, I've heard that Jesus is king and that seems to make sense to me, but when did he actually become king? I don't know that I would have actually been able to answer precisely that question before reading this text from Paul this past week. But now I know because Paul makes it clear. And in this text, we discover, once again, not that the essence of Jesus changed. He has always been and will always be the Son of God but we discover that the role and function and status of Jesus changed. Jesus went from being the Son of God in the weakness of flesh to being, Paul says, the Son of God in power and that this change was affected by the spirit of of holiness, which I take to mean the Holy Spirit, the arm of the Godhead in the earthly realm who raises Jesus from a body of weakness to a resurrection body of power. And when did that turning point in the existence of the Son of God occur? Paul tells us, by the resurrection from the dead. It was at this very specific point in all of history, the resurrection of Jesus from the clutches of death, that he was appointed and anointed and crowned the king of the universe. Which is so massive and significant. Listen to how Douglas Moore says it. What Paul is claiming then is that the pre-existent son who entered into human existence as the promised Messiah was appointed on the basis of the resurrection to a new and more powerful position in relation to to the world by virtue of obedience to the will of the father and because of the revelation of God's saving power in his good news the son of god attains a new exalted status as lord son of god from eternity he becomes son of god in power so that the writer to hebrews could say he is able to save completely those to who come to him by God. Thus, it is not a transition from a human Messiah to a divine Son of God, but from the Son as Messiah to the Son as both Messiah and powerful and reigning and anointed King. This deserves further thought. Thought about what that moment would have been like for Jesus and for the Father this week, I was, I was trying to think what, have, what would have gone on in that moment in the heavenly realm with all the saints who had gone before, and millions and millions, I mean, picture it, the heavenly realm, and all the saints who are there, we learn from Hebrews, right? All the saints that have gone above this great cloud of witnesses, we learn from Luke chapter two that there are millions and millions and millions of angels that are gathered around the Father. Watching as Jesus breaks triumphantly from the grave in the clutches of the evil one as the devil and all of his fallen angels scream in rage and agony at their defeat and Jesus' victory and he enters with scars in his hand and wounds in his side and on his brow into that arena. I mean, this is the coronation of the risen son of God. Imagine how much more amazing that coronation had to be than the coronation of a king in England just a few months ago. And I thought of how proud the father had to be when the son enters into that moment. Do you remember what he said at his baptism? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And I thought of how John in his revelation gives us a peek into that throne room of a rainbow that has the appearance of an emerald surrounding the throne. And around the throne are 24 thrones and 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads and flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder are coming from the throne. And seven fiery torches are burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, is before this throne. And there are fantastical beasts found all around the throne, Proclaiming always and forever, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And all the living creatures, and all the angels, and all the elders, and all the saints are giving glory and honor and thanks to the one seated on the throne, proclaiming, Our Lord and God, you alone are worthy to receive glory and honor and praise. And into that throne room walks the now risen son of god and his father looks at him and what does he say i have to believe he says this all of you creatures and all of you angels and all of you saints this is my beloved son and whom i am well pleased and maybe an angel maybe it's gabriel takes a crown and in his coronation puts it on his head and maybe they sing words
1: like these all hail the power of jesus name let angels prostrate fall sing with me bring forth the royal diadem and crown him lord of all bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Oh, that with all the sacred throng we at his feet may fall, we'll join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all. Will join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all. Hallelujah. And one day
0: you will see him as he is. One day we will stand in that throng, and he will walk down that road on that glass, and we'll get to sing. It's going to happen. Do you believe it? Oh, amen. The coronation of King Jesus, dear friends, is the critical point of demarcation, writes Frank Thielman because it signals the time when sin and death conspired with the law to keep human beings locked in their sinful condition to a time when God has now begun to transform the world to remove the corrosive effects of sin and including, up to and including, death. And Jesus was the first to rise from death, but dear friends, He will not be the last. And Paul's good news is the good news concerning God's Son, the heir of the forever throne of David, the anointed Messiah long prophesied, the king of the universe and heir of all things through whom we may receive grace and life on the other side of death. That promise is ours. He is the first fruits from creation. If, if we share in the obedience of faith, which is the calling placed upon Paul and the Romans and us. Verse five, through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. He's speaking to Christians primarily, right, in Romans and throughout Romans. This is to strengthen those who already believe in Jesus. And the burden of Paul's ministry and the fire in his belly is to see unbelievers and believers All who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, to come into the obedience of faith for the sake of the name of Jesus. Everything he said up to this point about the gospel of God and Jesus and his apostleship and what he longs for in Rome culminates in this, the obedience of faith. Which means it's important for us to know what that is. Because Paul has already brought up the notion of grace two times in the first sentence of this letter. And I've told you I think that the purpose of this letter is a church humbled together under the grace of God, which we're going to discover more in the weeks ahead. that, That grace is a thread that runs through the next 16 chapters. So if the good news of God is about the grace of God through Jesus the King, why does Paul say that his mission is to bring about the obedience of faith? It sounds like works, doesn't it? Okay, so we are not going to be able to answer all the questions in any one particular sermon, okay? We're going to be in this letter, I'm guessing, for about the next year and a half, okay? So we're going we're gonna to unpack these over somewhere around 40 to 50 sermons. But here's what I'll say about the obedience of faith this morning. There are a number of different options that I think we could have for what Paul means. Among them, Paul could be saying that obedience flows from faith. Or Paul could mean that obedience and faith are mutually descriptive, that in his mind they are saying the same thing. They're synonymous. Faith is obedience and obedience is faith. My current understanding of this text, my current I don't know if it'll be the same in Romans 15 as Romans 1. My current understanding of this text is that I think he means both. Isn't that a great answer? Which one is it, Pastor? Both. (laughs) I think, first, that God grants us faith. It is a gift. And that belief in Jesus as Savior is also belief in Jesus as King. And so, thus, a life of belief and faith is therefore a life of obedience obedience flows from faith and i see in romans 10:16 paul is also willing to talk about faith in terms of obedience when he says not all obeyed the good news so it seems that there's a notion of obedience even inside of faith and paul's mission is to bring about that obedience of faith to king Jesus, here's how Karl Barth said it that I think is really helpful. Faith is not obedience, but as obedience is not obedience without faith, faith is not faith without obedience. (laughs) To which you may say, that didn't help at all. (laughs) Listen to his next sentence. They belong together as do thunder and lightning in a thunderstorm. That is helpful. That's how faith and obedience are operating. And dear friends, this idea of the obedience of faith is a counter-cultural message, right? Obedience. Oh, don't tell me what to do. And we with Paul proclaim the glories and the glad tidings. These are glories and glad tidings that God has made a way to escape sin and suffering and death and condemnation and judgment and shame and punishment and pain Feelings of unforgiveness, a void in the very depths of your soul. God has graciously provided a way into eternal life so you don't have to be afraid of death anymore. Into a new heavens and a new earth so you don't have to have your life wrapped up in this one anymore. Far beyond all that we could imagine or ask for. And Paul says it's free. All of it is free by the grace of God. But it comes by way of submission to a king. And his name is Jesus. Jesus not Buddha, not Muhammad. His name is Jesus. And he's the only way to this God. It comes by way of a faith and belief and trust that bends its will to his and by way of a people who bend their knees to him in an obedience of faith. This is the only pathway to be loved by God. To be called saints, verse 7, to receive grace and peace from God our Father and the King Jesus Messiah. There is no other way to grow one step closer to Jesus. And just as Paul called the Romans to be a harmonious missionary church, humbled together under the grace of God for the glory of God, so too he calls us, dear family, as residents of the Arkansas River Valley, to spread the good news of God with missionary zeal to all of those around us. He has made us His beloved. He has called us to this purpose. He has placed us in this place to be heralds and messengers of King Jesus for the sake of His name and not our glory. For His. Worship team, would you come up? I close with... Very powerful words from John Stott, who is now already in the presence of our King. If therefore, listen closely, if therefore God desires every knee to bow to Jesus and every tongue to confess Jesus, so should we. We should desire that too. We should be jealous, as the Scripture sometimes puts it, for the honor of the name of Jesus. We should be troubled when it remains unknown. We should be hurt when his name is ignored. We should be indignant when his name is blasphemed. And someone uses the name of Jesus in vain. We should all the time be anxious and determined that the name of our King Jesus be given the honor and glory which are due to it. Listen, John Stott says the highest of all missionary motives, and this was so convicting for me, is not obedience to the Great Commission, as important as that is it is not even love for sinners who are alienated and alienated and perishing strong as that incentive should be especially when we contemplate hell and the wrath of god which we should do rather the highest of all missionary motives is zeal burning and passionate zeal a fire in our hearts
1: for the glory of king jesus for the glory of christ
0: May it be so among us. Yes.